This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In the 16th and 17th centuries, the Reformed churches were known for their covenant theology, for their view that the scriptures teach a covenant between the Father and the Son before time, a covenant of works with Adam in history, and a covenant of grace promised after the fall. Most of the Reformed theologians since the Reformation have either had a section in their theology on the covenants or have written whole volumes explaining how the biblical teaching about the covenants ties together all of scripture. In late modern North America, however, covenant theology is largely unknown to most of the 60 million evangelicals who make up the larger part of Protestantism. Even among Reformed and Presbyterian folk, covenant theology is sometimes regarded as a mystery best left to the experts. So it's with real joy that Office Hours welcomes the Reverend Mr. Michael Brown, pastor of Christ United Reformed Church in Santee, California, and the Reverend Mr. Zach Keel, pastor of Escondido Orthodox Presbyterian Church, to the studio to talk about their new book, Sacred Bond, Covenant Theology Explored, published in 2012 by Reformed Fellowship and available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, pastors, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Good afternoon. Well, why did you write this book? I mean, we all know the Bible does mention the word covenant, but there are people who would say covenant, yes, but covenant theology, not so much. So are you fellows just imposing a system on Scripture and taking it away from the laity and making it complicated so nobody can understand it but you experts? Not at all. We're trying to do precisely the opposite. As pastors, Zach and I got together hoping to give something to lay people that would be accessible so that they can understand the central message of Scripture, which is quite clear, that it's God redeeming a people for himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's essentially what the covenants of the Bible highlight. As well as one thing that's key to the Reformed tradition is it's been looking at covenant, is their understanding that covenant theology arises out of Scripture, that it is exegetical. And it is biblical. How did you come to do this book together? Was one of you working on it and the other found out? Or did you, were you emailing, calling each other and saying, hey, let's do something? What is it that caused you fellows to write this book and then to do it together? I guess it's a two-part question. Well, if my memory serves me well, since I started working at Christ URC or serving them as their pastor, I've always tried to teach a covenant theology class quite regularly where we go through the covenants. And having put that material together, several people had told me over the years that having some sort of book or handbook that walked them through these things would be really helpful. I started working on that, and of course, trying to work on a book while you're faithfully pastoring a church is quite difficult. And Zach and I, we went to seminary together, remained friends, and we got to talking one day, and we thought that we could complement one another with our desire to do that and our skills and gifts, and it was a pleasure working together. And the listeners should know that you're both graduates of Westminster Seminary, California. I've been around too long, and I can't remember. When did you graduate, Mike? Oh, four. And Zach? Oh, three. All right. So you've been out for a little while and both actively pastoring. And so you were teaching this stuff and needed something. Zach, how did you come to be involved? What happened? One of my hobbies is just studying the Old Testament, and I've always had a particular interest in covenant theology. I teach a class, English Bible Survey, for the seminary, and so I had been doing more academic work on covenant theology for that as background. So basically, Mike knocked on my door and said, hey, you want to write this book together? And I said, sure. And we went from there. 
One of the nice things we might point out to Scott is that because Zach teaches that class on Bible survey here, and also he teaches languages, he, he's a fine exegete, he brought something to the book that complemented what my training is in, is also in historical theology and covenant theology. You did an MA thesis, and you published a volume on the history of covenant theology on Samuel Peto. Right. And so you bring different sets of gifts and interests to this project. Yeah, it seemed to go well together, so... How is this volume different from other books? Because there are other volumes on covenant theology. So why not just recommend one of those? Why this one? Well, I mean, that was another kind of frustration Mike and I had, is that when new members or people we knew asked us, so what's this covenant theology? Can you recommend a book? We didn't have something to hand them. Again, there's good books out there, but they tend to be too big or too academic. They tend to maybe be too technical. We wanted to write something that we could hand to the average layperson, evangelical, reformed, that was exegetical, but also looked at the history of reform theology. So our desire was to show that this covenant theology is part and parcel with Reformed confessionalism. Right, and each chapter is very simple in its approach. It states what the covenant is, and we try to do that also in even one sentence, describe what that covenant is, define it. Then it goes through, what does the Bible teach? Then we bring in some of the history, have we understood in Reformed theology? And then it looks at it pastorally. Why is this covenant important for the Christian life? And then it's followed up by some study questions. And we do that as we go through each covenant of the Bible in each chapter. The word covenant in the Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures is used over 200 times, more than 20 times in the New Testament. So it's not an uncommon word, and it's not a minor idea in Scripture. You have whole chapters devoted to it and major episodes in the history of salvation devoted to it, and yet people seem to struggle with it so. And some people even resist it and are opposed to it. Why do people struggle with covenant theology so much? Well, that's a good question. There may be a lot of different answers for that. It seems that one thing that people might resist is the idea that a covenant sounds like a cold contract. But one thing that Zach and I try to do in the book is show that a covenant is not only a contractual agreement, but it's also one that creates a relationship. It has legal aspects to it, but it creates a relationship. And we see this in our daily lives, whether it's our marriage covenants, marriage relationships that also is legally binding, or think of all the other covenants that you are in. If you have a cell phone contract, you're essentially in a covenant. If you have a mortgage, you're in a covenant. If you live in a neighborhood, you might well have covenants, codes, and restrictions. That's right. If you're married, you're in a covenant. And we cut covenants in the ancient world. You Certainly, you cut covenants, right? That's the biblical language. People might not be aware of that. And we do that all the time, don't we? We swear oaths. When you sign a mortgage, you say, you know, may bad things happen to me if I do not pay the mortgage. Right. Namely, you're going to come and take the house. And in the ancient world, we did that too. So this isn't as foreign as people might think. You know, if you've ever visited a foreign culture and you learn a language, you know they do things differently, but they use different terms, go about it, especially in marriage ceremonies, adoption things, those sorts. Well, they had covenants like we have covenants, but they do it in an ancient way. And so that's, I think, part of the difficulty is when we read Scripture, we're not familiar with the ancient world that they lived in, and so they seem that much more foreign and harder to get a handle on. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. What happens if we don't get covenant theology right? 
And is there anybody, really, who reads the Bible who doesn't have a covenant theology? I hear sometimes people say, you know, I'd like to find a middle way between dispensationalism and covenant theology. I don't want to commit myself to either one of these systems. I want to find a middle way. What do you fellows think about that? Yeah, one of the things that I think we have to point out, the importance of getting covenant theology, is, as we mentioned before, it's of the very fabric of Scripture. It's really the framework that God has chosen to use to bring His message and His salvation to us, the message of salvation and the salvation itself. Jesus did say, this is the new covenant in my blood. Right. So if someone's resisting it, they're resisting a fairly basic biblical given datum, right? Right. We cannot understand the Bible as a unified message apart from the covenants that God himself has made with people. So it's of the very essence of Scripture, and failing to understand covenant theology very easily can lead to misunderstanding the difference between law and gospel. So when you're going through the Old Testament, for example, if you're going through a psalm and there's a mention of covenant, we always have to ask which covenant, because not all covenants are the same. There's not only one covenant. There's a covenant of promise and grace made with Abraham. There's a covenant of law and uh, more of a works principle with the nation Israel. And if we don't understand the difference between those two, we can easily end up in the Judaizer error that Paul was addressing when he wrote to the Galatians. And I'm going to come back to what you were just touching on, but Zach, what do you think of this business of people saying, I want to go between the two systems and find a middle way? Do you think that's possible? No, I don't think it's possible. I think a lot of people who say that feel that both dispensational and covenant theology, as you say, are a system imposed, and they're looking for something more organic, something more natural from Scripture, and so I think it betrays their lack of understanding of covenant theology. I think once it's understood correctly, it no longer feels like a system imposed, but it feels like what's natural in Scripture that naturally blossoms out of each character, each chapter. Is it fair to say that covenant theology is simply an account of the history of salvation? Very much so. Yeah, in many ways that'd be correct. Now, were you fellows raised in covenant theology, or did you come to it? I came to it. I was raised dispensational, and I came to it. So how was that transition for you, Zach? It was actually fairly easy. I grew up in a very classical dispensational church that did all the charts and stuff, and I always felt like that didn't make much sense. And so explain what that means for the listener who may not be familiar with what it means to say classical dispensational. Yeah, classical dispensational is one who uh, very much holds to the Schofield reference Bible in their notes. Schofield reference notes are the notes that he published in his reference Bible in the 1800s. And so in that, in those notes, you find kind of contained this what became known as dispensationalism. And so in there, you have these seven different epochs of history and the whole rapture and others, and they have these very elaborate, colorful charts. And I remember growing up with those thinking, I don't see this anywhere. So when I was introduced to covenant theology, it actually clicked quite easily. I had very little attachment to the dispensationalism I grew up with. I likewise grew up dispensationalist, maybe not with all the charts, but the tradition of the church that I grew up in certainly pushed the whole eschatological scenario with the rapture, the seven-year tribulation, the millennium, etc. But what I came to realize was that dispensationalism, in all of its variant forms, essentially begins with two 
plans for two peoples of God, Israel and the church. And it always leads to problems in interpreting the Old Testament and seeing the new fulfill the old. And like Zach, hearing covenant theology explained helped unify. It made sense out of the book of Hebrews, out of Galatians. It made sense out of what Jesus is saying when he says, I've come to fulfill the work that my Father gave me to do. It unifies the Bible together in one message that highlights the personal work of Christ. Let's talk about interpreting Scripture. According to covenant theology, how should we interpret Scripture? Does the Old Testament control the New Testament, or does the New Testament control the Old? How do you work that out? In some ways, the New Testament is what controls the Old Testament. It is what gives us the clarity. So it's the magnifying glass that we can go back. However, as we look at the Old Testament painting through the clear lens, we actually see the beauty of the lens more. So there is a give and take. As we understand the Old Testament more, we understand the New Testament more. You know, as we see in the New Testament, Christ is the light. He is the one who revealed, as he says in uh, Matthew 13, sages of old longed to see what you're seeing, and they couldn't find it. First Peter 1, they searched it out. Even the angels wanted to know, what is Christ going to be like? Well, the New Testament tells us. But the Old Testament adds depth and shade to the clear revelation of Jesus Christ in the New. It's also important, we might add, to interpret the Bible, understanding the difference between these covenants. In the Old Testament, the two central covenants really are the covenant God makes with Abraham and the covenant that God makes with Israel at Mount Sinai. And it's fair to say that in, in some ways, those two covenants, the Abrahamic and the Mosaic, which are distinct, even though they would represent different administrations in the one covenant of grace, in many ways those are like the twin engines on a plane that flies all of the Old Testament coming into the greater revelation that's progressed all the way in the coming of Christ. When we come back after this, here's the question I want you fellows to address. Some people have concluded, particularly in the 20th century and now in the 21st century, that the old Reformed idea that there was a kind of legal probationary arrangement, which really didn't begin with the Reformed even, that goes back to the Church Fathers, if we're thinking outside of the canonical period, and that relationship between God and Adam as the representative of all humanity was a legal relationship that could be described as a covenant of works or a covenant of life or covenant of nature, that was something that really isn't a tenable idea. We have to get rid of it. When we come back, I want you to address that right after this. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 
800-242-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. Mike, how do you defend the existence of a covenant of works? What is it, and how do you know it's in the Bible? Because Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, they nowhere say covenant of works. Right. So how do you know it's there? Aren't you just making that up and reading that into the text and then building a whole system out of an idea that you made up and read into the Bible? Absolutely not. And in no way do we want to give the impression that we are taking a system and imposing it upon Scripture. It's important to point out that simply because something doesn't appear in its name doesn't mean that it's not there. Nowhere in the Bible is the word Trinity appear anywhere. Yet we believe that there is a Trinity because of what the Bible reveals as a whole. The same we would say with the covenant of works. It's interesting that in chapters 1 through 3 of Genesis, nowhere does the word sin appear. And yet, of course, we know that the great original sin took place in those chapters. And so we have to take the Bible as a whole to reveal these things to us, and also the elements of that particular covenant, which we understand as God's commitment to give Adam and his posterity in him eternal life for obedience or eternal death for disobedience. And that's made very clear by the fact that God gave Adam particular work to do. He set him in the garden in Genesis 2.15 to work the garden and to guard it. And he also gave him things that he was not to do, namely eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in the day he did that, he would die. So here we see work that he's supposed to do. We see promise given of eternal life that is symbolized in the tree of life, and we see curse. So all of that, given also with the greater revelation of the New Testament in places like Romans 5 and all the work of Christ that he completes, we see a covenant of works. Zach, are there any clues in the narrative itself that there's something going on here that is covenantal? There's lots. I think the very story and narrative of Genesis 2 and 3 have this written all over it. The fact that the Lord puts Adam in a garden, he gives him commandments. You know, I think another thing is we read Genesis 2, we have to remember Moses is giving this to Israel, where we don't know necessarily, but right around Sinai. And in these chapters, the Lord always is the Lord God, the kind of covenantal name that we get through all of the Sinai covenant. We get the command, if you eat of the tree of good and evil, you shall surely die, which is actually a legal execution. It's in the Mosaic covenant. So you get all this stuff that for them, they have the Moses right there to refer back and to understand. So you don't need the word because all the stuff of it is right there. And there were a couple of trees also present in this narrative. What do those trees mean, Mike? Well, they symbolize many ways the promise and the curse that is held out before Adam that's dependent upon his obedience or disobedience. So the tree of life represents that glorified life that Adam would inherit for himself and all those whom he represented if he obeyed the commands God gave him to do. And, of course, the tree of knowledge of good and evil represents the curse that God attached to it, essentially, if he was to take of it. Did Adam have the ability to do this? How did that work? Some people have said, well, this thing you're describing as a legal covenant, do this and live, was really a gracious covenant. How do you answer that? Yeah, he was fully capable and able to do this because God created him in holiness and righteousness. So God created Adam good, holy, and fully able to execute righteousness and fulfill the covenant. And God set the terms. He valued life at Adam's obedience. So God made the reward valued at the requirement. What do you think of saying that God graciously made this covenant, but that the covenant itself is a legal covenant? Well, it's fair to say if we're using the term graciously, if we mean that he condescended to us 
as the great creator and determined the boundaries of this covenant by his covenantally determined merit, fine. But if we're going to define grace as God's favor given to a demerited creature, then that's when confusion begins to arise. Because, you see, the point for the average layperson and, and reader of the Bible, you know, this isn't really heady stuff at all. The main point of understanding the covenant of works and distinction from the covenant of grace is really to understand whether or not we are right with God because of the obedience of someone else, namely Christ, whose work is what reconciled us to God, or we are made right with God by our own obedience, which would be a covenant of works. So the covenant of works is important to grasp because it sets up, if you will, the stage for Jesus Christ to come in and to fulfill that which the first Adam failed to do. And that's why he's called the second Adam or the last Adam in Scripture. He's the one that cast out the serpent, essentially. He's the one that crushed the serpent's head. He's the promised seed, the champion, the offspring that was promised in Genesis 3.15 so that we would inherit life. And that's why also you have the tree of life reappearing in the final chapters of Revelation. There's another covenant in history that God made after the fall. Zach, we call that what? The covenant of grace. And again, like the covenant of works, the language covenant of grace isn't explicit there. So why do you say that? The Reformed tradition has called it the covenant of grace, not because really the end goal is different. Adam was promised eschatological life, and so... What does that mean, eschatological life? What kind of life is that? The life pictured for us in Revelation 21 and 22. So eternal life with God where there's no impure thing, no sin. A life of total blessedness in the presence of the living God. Exactly. So Adam was promised that, and that promise is still for us in the covenant of grace. The things different is how we get there. Adam got there by works, his keeping of the law. We get there because God graciously gives it to us through the work of Jesus Christ, who is our mediator and surety. So someone still had to keep the covenant of works that God made with Adam. Somebody still had to obey that law. There has to be a legal basis of righteousness by which God's righteousness and law and holiness are satisfied, that he can impute, reckon, credit to us. And so is that why we call it a covenant of grace? Yeah, that's where Jesus Christ comes in. He's the champion seed. Is it fair to say that it's grace for us sinners who receive the benefits, but it was works for Jesus? Yes. He had to work. So he was not in a covenant of grace. No. No, as he tells John the Baptist, you have to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. As he says over and over again in the Gospels, I have come to do the work that the Father gave me to do, and he even concludes that work by saying, it is finished, his work, which is what saves us. And behind these two covenants, there is another covenant that is perhaps even less familiar to the listener than the covenants of works and grace, or law and gospel and that's the covenant of redemption, or sometimes the covenant of peace, between the Father and the Son, and perhaps implicitly the Holy Spirit. Tell us a little bit about the covenant of redemption before time between the Father and the Son. From where do we get that idea, and why is it significant, and what does it mean? The covenant of redemption is taking into consideration a lot of places in Scripture where it talks about God's plan to save us from eternity, from before the foundation of the world. And in this plan to save us, it is a plan where we see the Father giving to the Son a people. It is a plan where the Son is promising obedience. It is a plan where the Father's requiring the Son to do a work. We see that in John in numerous places. So 
So what we're seeing in the covenant redemption is we're looking at how God as triune made this covenant with each other to seal our redemption. And what's the role of the Spirit in the covenant of redemption, Mike? He applies the work of the Son. And so we see, for example, Paul writing in the beginning of Ephesians how the Father elected us in Christ before the foundations of the world. The Son redeemed us by his work. And then the Holy Spirit seals us. He applies that redemption that Christ achieved. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Zach, where in Scripture do you see indications of this pre-temporal, eternal covenant between the Father and the Son? Because there have been some writers who've said, oh, I don't know, that sounds kind of speculative and theoretical and not very much like Scripture. Yeah, Ephesians 1, 3 through 11, God's electing from all eternity, giving to the Son a people, the Spirit coming and applying that, and giving us an inheritance that the Son earned. John 17 is probably one of the clearest where in the prayer Jesus says, as we agreed before all eternity. So right before his death, he's basically saying, Father, now I have fulfilled your will. Now give me this people and restore me to the glory I had. Right. In that prayer, it's interesting that Jesus mentions seven times those whom you gave me. And when did the Father give those people to him? Before the foundations of the earth. So in uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, how God has saved us in Christ, the grace that he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And it's not speculative. It's interesting how people will often think that it's speculative because this is something that took place before time. It's an eternity past. But we have to understand that not only is it founded on strong biblical evidence, but this covenant in the opposite of being speculative, it actually gives us a concrete focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ, rather than leading us to be speculative about the hidden decrees of God, which of course we're prone to do because we're sinful. It leads us to look no further than the mediator of that covenant who came in human flesh to live, die, and be raised again from the dead, which is Jesus Christ. And you have in that covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son, and implicitly the Holy Spirit, both principles, right, of works and and grace, because it's works for the Son, for us, that He voluntarily took on, that He loved us from all eternity. And the Father loves us in Him, gives us to Him. He came into time and space, accomplished that work voluntarily for us. So the Father loved us, the Son loved us, the Holy Spirit loved us from eternity and accomplished their purposes. Now, in the few moments we have remaining, explain the whole Old Testament. <laughs> What I mean by that is when you look at the various biblical covenants in the Old Testament, you've got Noah's, the first explicit and and maybe two distinct covenants, Mm -hmm. depending on how one reads those, in Genesis 6 and Genesis 9. And then you have, of course, Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, and then Moses— and then David. Well, I'll start and then Zach can finish. Noah essentially is a covenant that God makes with the whole earth. It's a little different. It's not a redemptive covenant. What we find, though, is that God promises to the earth uh, through Noah, essentially, that he will continue his providential care of creation until the consummation. This allows the promised Christ whom he promised in Genesis 3.15 to Adam, to come in the fullness of time, and essentially for us to come to Christ. As the story moves on, you get to Genesis 12 and Abraham, and he's really the central figure in Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11 essentially is to get us up to Abraham. Then we see the speed of the story slow down, and God promises to Abraham several things, but two main things in particular, an offspring and a land. He, of course, is childless. And what we find is that he has a son, Isaac, then Jacob, 
and the 12 tribes, they all end up in Egypt. 400 years go by, and God fulfills his promise by causing them to become a huge offspring, numbered like the sand by the sea, by the star, the stars of the sky, and he brings them to Canaan, the promised land. That's the first level of fulfillment. The greater level of fulfillment is Christ, who comes as the offspring of Abraham, as Paul calls him in Galatians. And then we in him are called the seed, the offspring of Abraham. And we see the greater Canaan, the greater promised land, being the new heavens and the new earth, as the book of Hebrews points out. And then comes Moses. Yeah, and then in Genesis 3, when God promises Eve, you know, your seed, the promise there is really kind of whole world, because that's all the humans. And with Noah up to the flood, we now get this mass of humanity that's wicked and the righteous family, the righteous eight, as Peter calls them. So we get this narrowing of God's promise. But then with Abraham, as it narrows again down to one family, we get, you will be a blessing to the nation. So then with that promise, we're looking for this salvation to go to all the earth. But as God deals with Israel narrowly, he's showing us what is needed for that salvation to go all the earth. And a key aspect of that is to fulfill God's justice and his holiness. Because I think practically our tendencies as people is to think we're not that sinful. We're not that bad. And if we're not that bad, that implicitly denigrates God's holiness. He's not that holy. Moses functioned to teach the Israelites the greatness of their sin and misery. Right. Exactly. But still God is saving his people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. At the same time, he's also pushing them to see the greatness of their sin and misery. So both things are happening simultaneously. Exactly. The analogy we used in the book is Moses is like a father teaching his arrogant son a lesson. And in order to teach his son a lesson, he has to be strict. But he's still saving them, but he's teaching them a strict lesson to show them the righteousness required for heaven. And that he's showing them the righteousness Christ fulfilled. And this is why Paul calls him a tutor or a schoolmaster in Galatians. Not only that, but it also sets up the stage in redemptive history for Christ to come and fulfill those demands. And in some ways, we can say that the Mosaic Covenant is the condition that Christ, as the true Israel, has to fulfill. You know, we read all those passages in the Old Testament about Israel as a nation having to be obedient. And if they're obedient, then they get blessings. If they're disobedient, they get curses and they'll be out of the land. Well, that also sets us up for Christ who is obedient as the second Adam, as the true Israel, and through him we inherit the blessings of the new covenant. And then finally, there's a new covenant. It's new relative to what? Relative to Moses, not relative to Abraham, because the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are both covenants of promise. And it's important for us to understand, as Paul points out in Galatians, that the Abrahamic covenant was not annulled by the Mosaic covenant that came 430 years later. God makes the promise to fulfill the vows, to fulfill the conditions in the Abrahamic covenant. But the onus is primarily put on the people in the Mosaic covenant when they said, all of this we will do. But that connectivity is not broken between Abraham and the New Covenant, which is why you have several places in the New Testament, we as Christians being called the offspring, the children of Abraham. Abraham's children and members of, and heirs of, recipients of the New Covenant. And as such, Pastor, how does this whole covenant business affect the way we raise our children, we regard our children, and treat them in the church. Simply put, covenant theology shows us that God always deals with family. And when he came to Abraham, he included his sons. What I think is glorious is in Deuteronomy 30, Moses tells Israel, after reading them all the curses of the law, he says, 
you're going to fail. All these curses are going to come on you. So even right there, it shows that Moses was for a time. And he said, but after this, I will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children. And then in Jeremiah 32, which is a twin of Jeremiah 31, the new covenant promise, same new covenant promise in 32, and he says, I will do good to you and to your children. So the grace to our children is explicit in these new covenant promises. So when Peter stands up and says, this is for you and your children, that's what he's thinking about. Uh, He says the promise, which goes back to Abraham. It's important for us to always remember that God put his children, our children of believers, in his covenant with his people in the Abrahamic covenant, and he has nowhere taken them out. So they must remain there as members of his covenant community. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.